one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 346 for the week of Monday, November 28th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight, as always, is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Fresh back from beautiful, beautiful Merritt Island. How you doing there, Sawyer? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm in my happy place, Lake City. Good to be here. And welcome as well, Gina Herlihy. Thank you, Sawyer. Good to be here. All right, so let's get things off with our first and our biggest of our main stories today, which was that the Mars Science Laboratory, also known as Curiosity, successfully launched on its way to Mars on Saturday, November 26th at 10.02 a.m. Eastern Time aboard an Atlas V rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida. And Mark and Gene, you were both there covering the launch for Talking Space, so I can't wait to hear what you guys have for us. I got to say real quick that you said 10.02. I thought, sure, it was going to be like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the week after that. So I guess officially I was wrong. (laughs) Go ahead, Gene. You said it was going to be on time, and sure enough. Yeah, you know, the only thing I thought about looking at the weather uh, all week, it just seemed that uh, the sun was able to go ahead and burn any low-level clouds that were uh, in the area clean off. So uh, that that and that, Mark, I believe was the only concern weather-wise were were clouds. There really weren't any. Um, the winds weren't a concern. Um, there was some offshore rain at the time of of, uh, of launch, but it was not within the uh, the radius. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it it went off fairly well. Uh, it also, Mark, check me if I'm I'm correct on this, but there were a lot of surprises at launch time, or at least the sound of launch was a little bit interesting. I mean, I I actually fired. Uh, a tweet out afterward on Twitter basically saying that uh, uh, this thing actually screamed off the launch pad. So uh, if you got a sec, let's go ahead and play that and, and just get an idea for what I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah, Mark, um, check me if I'm wrong here, but if I, if I recall exactly, some members of, of, of the press corps were also saying, what was that? Because uh, uh, it, it was something – Something like that before, and I remember too. You had said that you had, you know, you'd you'd been at Juno, and you, it didn't sound like that. Yeah, in August I was there for Juno, which was uh, uh, almost the same. Uh, the Atlas rocket that launched Juno had five solids instead of four that was present for MSL, but uh, no, there wasn't a sound uh, that that we heard there. That kind of a whistling. Uh, screeching sound i kind of wondered if curiosity wasn't just excited to be on the way but um who knows and it wasn't just us that that had heard it too i believe the folks that were um over in 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 the cheap seats as it were uh uh had uh, also heard uh, heard something no yeah one of the viewing areas for visitor center guests that paid for the tickets out to see the rocket launch in this case was in the parking lot of the Orbiter Support Building. I forget the names of all the different buildings in the area, but I think it was OSB, and uh, they were in the parking lot out in the flat, you know, which is just adjacent to the VAB, and they heard the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just getting to Curiosity herself, uh, a couple of misnomers that I've I heard running around. One is somebody had characterized this thing as a monster truck-sized vehicle. Um, and no, it is not anywhere near something like Gravedigger or anything like that. It's, it's, but it's a, it's a fairly big, uh, big size. It's about the size of a, the way I, I, I've heard it characterized is about the size of a Mini Cooper. And, uh, there was a antique Mini Cooper parked outside the, 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 uh, press site. So I guess that was sort of a reminder of uh, what this thing is, uh, is how big this thing really, really is. Uh, also, a lot of uh, press have been saying, oh, this thing is going to be looking for life. No, 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 not quite. Um, they're actually going um, on the infamous follow the water strategy that they've been going on since uh, the 1990s here. Uh, it is looking for the conditions that might be favorable for life. Um Curiosity herself does not have any experiments on board uh, that would be able to detect biologics, and that is not part of its uh, its mission. Its mission is to try to contest for the conditions that might be favorable for those biologics, and if, uh, if it is favorable, then I'm sure there's going to be a follow-up mission to that area. Yeah, if, but, you, want to if you want to detect everything, you got to send an astronaut. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, but uh, for now, uh, since we we don't we can't do that right now, uh, we will be going ahead and sending our robotic emissaries ahead of us. Since I interjected a little bit about people, uh, got to mention one of the one of the people sides of the story of MSL. Mm -hmm. There was a, uh, a press conference titled "Why Mars Excites and Inspires Us." And uh, people may have seen that on live and on replays on NASA TV. But uh, we got the opportunity to meet the young lady that named Curiosity, Clara Ma. And uh, I came away from that just thoroughly charmed with how, uh, how interested she was, not just in MSL, but in exploration overall. The fact that... Uh, it was interesting. I think she said her first name that she came up with was the one she stuck with, and she said everything else after that seemed kind of cheesy 
And uh, afterwards, I was talking to her and her family. I said, I think we need T-shirts that say, I met Clara Ma. <laughs> she was a she was a, a cool young lady. Yeah, she was. In fact, uh, uh, after the the whole thing was over, I stood up, shook her hand, and said, "Shoot, if I were I were her age and and uh, having to to deal with uh, us press idiots, uh, I I think I I would be freezing up." But uh, uh, she she was a remarkably elegant uh, elegant young lady, and, and I, I loved the one comment she made. Uh, to the effect, uh, yeah, before all this, before uh, you know, all this happened with Mar, with the, with the Mars science science laboratory, I was just a sixth grader, you know. Just, you know. <laughs> she was, she was just uh, an absolutely delightful young lady. Um, the one thing I did want, there was, by the way, a, uh, a tweet up going on uh, in conjunction with this thing too, and in light of that, uh, Veronica McGregor was also on that same panel. And uh, one of the questions I asked was, uh, as far as um, a follow-up to to the tweet-ups, what has been the impact of them? Uh, have they done any studies and so on as far as what individuals have gone off to do? And um, her response was rather interesting. She basically said, yeah, they've gone off and a lot of the tweet-up participants have gone off and done uh, presentations at uh, in their local communities, either to you know scouting groups or just to to uh, civic groups about uh, their visit and what they learned and and so on. So uh, uh, they are having an impact. Um, yeah, that was. But uh, indeed, uh, Clara was was indeed a, a very very engaging young lady. Um, there is one uh, experiment that was that you and I, Mark, kind of kind of sat in on that is uh, on board. Um, the uh, Curiosity rover. It's a uh, chemistry and mineralogy experiment. It's, I guess, the whole purpose of it is to um, analyze, you know, soil samples uh, delivered by uh, the robotic arm on board Curiosity, and it'll go ahead and identify the minerals in in these particular samples. Um, the interesting thing about this particular detection device is its uh, spin-off ability. And it, apparently there are some uh, third world nations or developing nations, whatever you want to go ahead and call it, that uh, uh, some countries, China among them, are uh, kind of sort of taking advantage of uh, when it comes to malaria vaccine. And um, this particular device that's on board Curiosity, uh, talking about, again, the, the topic of, of spin-off technology, um, may be employed at some point in the future to detect uh, counterfeit pharmaceuticals coming into uh, a third-world nation, uh, which is kind of important because uh, from what uh, the principal investigator on this particular device had, had indicated to me is that uh, uh, these malaria drugs that or counterfeit malaria drugs that come in and they have they're sprinkled with acetaminophen and just some other placebo or some filler so uh, and that's particularly insidious because the person receiving this actually thinks they're getting better when they go ahead and take it because their fever goes down temporarily um, and then goes you know once it's the the effects wear off it goes way way back up so the idea is to bring this particular uh, device into 
the area to try to detect um, counterfeit uh, counterfeit medication. And uh, the only problem that they're having with this is that, um, well, uh, these th- other countries aren't too trusting of us coming in here saying that we've got a device that will go ahead and detect this. The reason is, again, they've been sold a bill of goods so many times. You know, it's sort of like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep track of this and see how it develops. But, uh, again, this, that's just one uh, spin-off possibility for this particular experiment. There are several others, others uh, flying, but uh, Dr., uh, Dr. David Blake, who is the, uh, the uh, principal investigator, Mark, Mark gave us a really good presentation on that, and we'll go into that uh, in depth at some other point. Yeah, as usual, I'm impressed whenever uh, whenever you open the hood on the car and look and see what's in there. When it, you start to hear a little bit of the nuts and the bolts and how it works, and you know something so different as mineralogy and analyzing samples and walking away and feeling like I've got a little bit of an understanding of it that makes some sense and and brings that holy cow, gee whiz, wow factor way up there and. Uh, and they did it again with just the one instrument that that we heard the discussion on. Yeah, indeed. Um, speaking of uh, a, a wow factor, before uh, the launch, uh, the uh, NASA folks gave a really interesting tour of uh, some of the facilities, uh, the vehicle assembly building, uh, what and what is being done to uh, go ahead and get that ready for uh, SLS construction. Uh, there are some also some upgrades in, inside that building that are being performed that are have been needed since the Apollo days, and uh, those upgrades are uh, are currently in work. Um, we went out to uh, to Pad 39B, which the last time we saw that that area, it was it was back around I guess April, and uh, at that time. Uh, a, uh, a demolition company was was hacking away at the uh, remote service structure for the shuttle uh, because all the action was going on on Pad 39A, and they were transforming 39B into what is called the clean pad concept. But you could hear literally audible gasps from from us in the press corps looking at that back in April. Now that the pain is over and done with, and both uh, the uh, RSS and the uh, the gantry over there are now now history. Um, it the clean pad concept is there. They also went ahead and took the time to rip out all of the old, you know, Apollo-style cable that was still out there and replace it all with fiber optics. Um, next, uh, that large uh, tower that was built essentially for Ares One uh, was pulled over there to test any type of uh, plug-ins and all that. That's also being modified for use for the uh, uh, the, the SLS. I did ask during the during a press conference if uh, that would be modified since it was for uh, initially for the Ares One, if uh, ATK's Liberty rocket was also going to go ahead and use that same gantry or not. And uh, the, I, the 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 feeling the general feeling was no. They were contacted and they looked at the requirements and it doesn't look like ATK's Liberty is compatible with that particular um, that particular tower anymore. Uh, I think probably because of the uh, the Astrium uh, second stage, which um, 
again, is the same uh, stage that the uh, the Ariane 5 uses. So I think that was that was the primary reason. Um, although that wasn't really stated, but that's only only my speculation there. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, that tower mark has been is sitting now over at Pad 39B, and will stay there for the remainder of this week, and then be pulled back to the uh, vehicle assembly building. Again, they're they're making sure that uh, all the, the all the connections uh, that uh, would feed into that tower are running and running properly. And and they seem to be when I was out there. So we got up to the uh, the very top of that particular particular tower and uh, the view from there was just absolutely breathtaking it was almost around sunset when we went in there and uh, just wow and absolutely incredible um, we also talked to a couple of the individuals that are working to refit the uh, the two crawlers uh, again these are these are the Apollo era crawlers that carried the Saturn V over and have been carrying the shuttle over during its lifetime they are going to receive complete refits I believe the uh, the, con- the small control room is going to be modernized. The uh, the uh, actual driver seat is going to be modernized. There's some other uh, items that are also going to be repaired and replaced. But um, uh, so the idea too, I think, too, is to try to make these things uh, accommodate uh, any type of vehicle that comes down the pike, whether it's the SLS or some other commercial vehicle. Same thing with Pad 39B. I also remember that they're going to go ahead and dig the uh, the blast trench underneath there a little bit a uh, little bit further apart, and they're going to try to get um, retractable blast shields in there to go ahead and uh, accommodate again any other vehicle, whether it be the SLS or some commercial vehicle. So the idea again is to be flexible, and that's that's what I'm, I'm I got from from my visit from Pad 39B. But um, the real deal was to go over to the control room. Uh, this was firing room one, which we visited, and the uh, the last time that was used was for the Ares 1X uh, mission, um, and uh, uh, there too. The key word, again, was flexibility. The idea was to go ahead and set this control room up so it could uh, accommodate multiple launches at any given time, meaning you could be preparing for a launch on pad 39B and theoretically control another launch um, at the same time um, over at launch complex 41. So, again, they're trying to be as flexible as they possibly can because I, 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 I think that they're trying to make sure that they are attractive to, uh, to any of the commercial folks uh, that uh, want to go ahead and use these facilities. Um, the other thing, too, I got was that they don't the, – the folks over at the Kennedy Space Center don't really feel threatened by Wallops Island at all. Um, Although they kind of look at uh, Wallops Island as more of a complementary thing. I, I know that some – there was a few articles a while back ago that tried to go ahead and, and kind of put pit the Kennedy Space Center against Wallops Island because the announcement might – had said that uh, uh, we might be flying uh, humans out of Wallops Island at some point. And um, you know, some people on the Space Coast in Florida felt a little threatened by that because they've had the lion's share of that for years. But uh, the folks over at Kennedy Space Center didn't feel that way. Everybody I talked to felt like, well, they're sort of complementing what we do, what we do, but they're not, you know, a replacement. So they didn't really feel threatened by that. But uh, again, the key word coming out of that whole day, that whole first day, was to be flexible, and I think they, they're accomplishing that. So hats off to them. 
Okay, so Curiosity, which launched, is now scheduled to land on Mars at Gale Crater sometime between August 6th and August 20th, 2012. So we're looking, though, at early August. Yeah, and we're hoping to be there for that, so uh, keep, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, I hope the weather's good. <laughs> it should be. So we'll stray away from the Red Planet for a little bit and head back to Earth. But we're going to stick in the Kennedy Space Center area. As we mentioned on a previous show, if you ever watched the launch press conferences for the Space Shuttle, you knew it was the Mike and Mike show. There was Mike Moses and Mike Leinbach. We announced Mike Moses' previous leave from NASA. And now the other Mike, Mike Leinbach, is on his way out. Yeah, I guess the announcement came through uh, earlier this morning. If I'm not correct, if I'm correct, there, Sawyer, um, he didn't. The announcement, from what I saw, did not mention what company that uh, uh, Mike Leinbach may be going to. Uh, he just simply said it was another aerospace company in the Florida area, and uh, he just didn't want to move his uh, his family out of there. But uh, indeed, he is leaving NASA. My guess is he's going to Boeing. <clears throat> Boeing just set up shop there. And they're going to hire 550 people. He'd probably be a very integral manager to bring on board at this point. He'd be a good asset for sure. I mean, he brings all the shuttle experience with him. And uh, uh, you know, if, if uh, a company's trying to figure out how to how to do things right, then um, they've they've got a tremendous asset in uh, in Mike Leinbach for sure. All right. So we wish Mike Leinbach all the best wherever he ends up going. Okay, so continuing along, there were a couple of interesting essays written recently about NASA's future exploration endeavors and the budget that goes with them. Gina, do you want to explain a little bit more in detail what we're talking about, please? Well, this morning I happened upon an article or an essay um, published on the Space Review by John Strickland entitled, The SLS, Is It Too Expensive for Exploration? And without getting into a lot of numbers and analysis, it basically goes through uh, just right now how expensive the SLS is projected to be since so much of the, lo- the rocket is expendable. Since, again, we're moving heavy weight of chemical f- fluid or fuel into space. And, um, you know, the, even the boosters, only they're only 80% reusable. So... It's making the argument, basically, that if we were to continue on our current path and develop the SLS, it's it's pretty much stating that we would wipe out any other resources NASA would have if we go forward with this. Now, you certainly could make that argument based on what it took to fly shuttle, because it's obviously doing a lot of comparison to the reusable rocket system, our space shuttle in, you know, 2010, 2011 dollars and what we're budgeted for right now going forward with NASA. But, you know, I I like to liken it perhaps to NASA right now is just a family that has to kind of get caught up on its savings before they could take a few extra vacations and, you know, buy a few more space probes for the house. I, you know, I just think all in all, the United States is in that position, I would like to think that in a few more years, this budget would be quite larger. I mean, let's not forget that when we built Apollo, um, it was 10% of the United States federal budget. Now, I don't necessarily see that happening, but I think somewhere the truth lies in between 
of the less than 1% NASA gets now and the 10% we once enjoyed in the 60s. I buy the argument on today's dollars, but you can't, you, you just absolutely cannot predict where we'll be in the future, budget-wise, dollar-wise, congressional-wise, you know, what president will oversee this. It's so far in the future, you know, even the next four years if Obama is re-elected, I mean, he really probably won't pay that much of an integral role. So um, it, I think it's, it, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a strong argument based on, you know, we don't ex- exactly know the future. We haven't built an SLS yet. It's like when we built the lunar module or the limb, it was so over budget. Well, of course it was. What do you have to compare it to? We've never done it before. I guess you can compare the SLS to the Saturn V, but in the Saturn V, we had a much larger chunk of the budget. So I guess stay tuned, see what happens. Careful how you vote if you are, are pro-space, I suppose. Yeah, um, to a degree, I, I, I would ha- I would have to agree, agree with you, Gina, but um, most of the NASA budget historically has been flat pretty much. Uh, over the years, I mean, the, with with increases for inflation and all that, if you take a look at it historically, it has been flat. And um, this year, I think it's actually taking a hit, along with every other government agency, to try to go ahead and save some money. But um, if I recall exactly, um, it comes out to be about four hundred and fifty million dollars per shuttle flight. Um, and if you do the, work the numbers a little bit, that's three, about maybe three, possibly four billion dollars a year. The SLS was going to be funded out of the uh, the savings coming out of the uh, out of the shuttle, since we're not operating it anymore. The only thing I, the only concern I have is the flight frequency. Um, SLS one, I think, is scheduled for tentatively scheduled for. Um, 2016 2017 time frame and the next one isn't scheduled until about what 2018 which would be SLS2 and that would be a piloted one so it it would be a full year before um you know we would be ready to go ahead and fly uh people on the thing so um you know there might be some <laughs> some some truth to the article but it, to me, I don't know. The, the SLS is still an integral linchpin of, of the future right now. I mean, even Bigelow Aerospace was saying at uh, a presentation a few weeks ago that they need SLS for a couple of their, their configurations. So, um, uh, you know, I, again, um, time will tell as to what happens. I mean, we didn't even think that we would be in this this entire soup about two years ago. I mean, we thought we were still going down the constellation path. So we'll have to see what happens after the election and see what uh, what transpires. Because I'm sure if there is a change of administration, we're going to be looking at a completely different program. And again, this goes back to uh, what uh, Miles O'Brien was saying on this program a while back ago. I think he's correct. We need something like a decadal study that we stick to and um, we do it for planetary science but we don't do it for for the uh, the human side of the house and maybe we should consider doing that and and sticking to it no matter what administration is in there well i guess the only way to find out is to see what ends up happening in the future with the budget and only time will tell about that
Tis true indeed, Sawyer. Tis true indeed. All right, so moving on to our last of the major stories. Russia launched a spacecraft a short while ago known as Phobos Grunt, which we talked about previously, which successfully launched and then failed to leave Earth orbit on its way towards Mars' moon Phobos. Now, the spacecraft, they've been trying to communicate with it via a satellite in Perth, Australia, and they've been trying to up its orbit, but not working too well yet, is it? No, I don't think the... It's, uh, correct, check me if I'm wrong. Um, they do... Sawyer, they did get a, get a link to the spacecraft, and they are able to go ahead and send commands at this point? First, they were trying to get a link to it. Then what happened was they were receiving data from the spacecraft, so they received one-way communication... They're still trying to contact it and send it commands, but it's not responding yet. Okay, so in other words, they're getting downlink, but they're but they can't uh, get it to. Uh, uh, no uplink capability. Yeah, they can't talk to it. I, I think the nicest thing you can say is that they got Radicom. I don't think they've got consistently anything. In fact, now they're the talk about sending uh, you know commands up. It's it says um, in a blog where I read some of this details on the mission mission specialists are trying this last ditch effort in order to prolong the life of the spacecraft um they're doing this in hope that phobos grunt would listen and execute the orbit boosting maneuver in other words they're sending commands in the blind hoping that the spacecraft will figure out what it's supposed to do not too good sounds like a desperation move to me honestly uh, this is a problem because if they can't get any communication with it then it's going to come down. So the reason that they're still trying to communicate with it is to see if they can at least put it into either a stable orbit or modify it so that when it comes crashing down, it doesn't crash down into anywhere populated, which was the scare again with URs and Rosat. Yep. Welcome to the wonderful world of space debris. Um, if, uh, uh, but uh, again, um, I think... Uh, uh, I, I think it's it's stick a fork in it. This thing's pretty much done, and um, it's a it's a darn shame too because it was such an ambitious mission, a sample return mission from one of the moons of Mars. It would have been really really cool to go ahead and do that and get that uh, and get that uh, that uh, information over. But sadly, it's not to be. I don't think we I don't think they're going to recover from this thing if they haven't done so already. Pretty much the Point of no return has come and gone, I think, and uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking we're we're probably looking at a URS Rosette situation for sure on this thing. Guess we will see soon enough. So remember, get your crash helmets out. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so those are our main stories, and if you're just figuring out our new format, we are now going to. Do our Talking Space Mad Minute, where each of us takes a minute to go over some stories that have been going on in the space community that we were not able to cover in detail in our episode. So let's get things started off. I was uh, talking with Doug Ellison um, from uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, earlier while we were puttering around over the press site. And uh, he put turned me on to an interesting little parody account uh, on Twitter. Uh, for the Curiosity mission, and uh, if, if anybody wants to go ahead and check it out, it's hysterical. Uh, it's obviously being done by somebody who knows something about uh, about 
curiosity and something about, about the uh, about the mission overall. It is at Killer Curiosity. So if if you want to go ahead and check that Twitter account out, please do. I I mean I was reading some of the uh, some of the posts and they were just absolutely hysterical. So uh, who we don't know who's actually doing it. No, this isn't the official account account for for the Mars Curiosity mission. Um, but uh, go ahead and check it out. It is just absolutely too funny. And one more one more other story story I have too. It looks like that the uh, the shuttle simulator over at the uh, Johnson Space Flight Center is being disassembled right now and being prepared for its uh, shipping over to uh, to uh, Seattle. Unfortunately, I still feel that this is the simulator should have stayed right where it was and and possibly moved over, but uh, going away and it's going to its new home in Seattle. Um, it, the Johnson Space Flight Center will get, I believe, the orbiter access arm and the Explorer, which is the uh, shuttle mock-up that is sitting outside um, at the uh, the Kennedy Space Center's vis- visitor center right now. So, Okay, I'll take one then, continuing along with the space shuttle theme. The Space Shuttle Enterprise, its title has now officially been handed over by NASA to the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, just as... Endeavor did recently at the California Science Center. The title now belongs to the Intrepid, although there was no major fanfare regarding it. Also along the lines of shuttle, where the shuttles come from was the Kennedy Space Center, and they're having a little Christmas event. If you go to the Kennedy Space Center and you go through the Rocket Garden, you will notice an ice rink, which you can go. You can rent some skates and skate on some artificial ice in the middle of Florida. That's a unique one. I guess everybody's figured out I've got a fascination with plutonium. Let me give you a little tidbit of history, and my source for this is Wikipedia. If you really want to read a lot of interesting information, take a look at that. But uh, anyway, plutonium was discovered by Dr. Glenn T. Seaborg. It was isolated and produced in 1940. It was chemically identified in February of 41. And Dr. Seaborg considered the name plutonium but later thought it didn't sound as good as plutonium, and he chose the letters P-U as a joke, which passed without notice into the periodic table of elements. He considered all other names, but the, uh, the joke of P-U is being what a child might say. It's something that smells, and it <laughs> made it in the list. Now, on the serious side, plutonium was also used that we've been talking about that powers curiosity, Plutonium-238 was used to power artificial heart pacemakers. And uh, it's estimated, from what I read in Wikipedia again, that as of 2003, there were somewhere between 50 and 100 plutonium-powered pacemakers still implanted and functioning in living patients. So, make radiation work for you. I guess those patients must have given a glowing review. Oh, but I'm pumped. Hey, thank you. Try the salmon, anyway. All right, with that, that rounds up our Talking Space Mad Minute. And as well, that wraps up this episode. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always fun to be here, Sawyer. And for the folks listening, look out. We're going to be going ahead in depth on uh, our trip out to uh, the Kennedy Space Center. So we're going to have some additional episodes to post with reference to that. So stay tuned. Keep an eye out on the website and the blog. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always, and thanks everybody for joining us. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Herlihy. You're very welcome. 
glad to be here. Always glad to have you. And we're always glad to have you, the listener, joining us. And, of course, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go Curiosity. Thank you.